Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast, where we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. I'm your host, Zara Karutz. On this podcast, we have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. This episode is a conversation with Colleen Hill, fashion author and curator at the museum at FIT in New York City. Colleen holds an MA in fashion and textile studies, history theory museum practices from FIT, and is currently a PhD candidate at the London College of Fashion. Colleen's most recent book is titled Reinvention and Restlessness, Fashion in the 90s, published by Rizzoli. And her most recent exhibition with the same namesake is on exhibit at the museum at FIT until April 17th. Both the book and the exhibition documents the changing culture, attitudes, and creatives that ushered in our visual age during a pivotal decade in fashion history. In this talk, Colleen and I discuss her exhibition and book, The Art of Curating and the Inner Workings of the Museum at FIT. This is my first conversation since moving from London to New York and a personal pleasure. I hope you enjoy. And now on to the conversation. Thank you for talking with me, Colleen. It's nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Zara. Thank you. Maybe we can start with a little bit about you before we dive into your work, because there's so much I want to get into the exhibition, the book. But what about you? What's your story? So I studied art history as an undergraduate student, and I really loved it, but didn't quite know where that was going to take me. I was a young graduate, so I didn't have a lot of knowledge of what an MA or a PhD program would even do for me. I'm also from the Midwest and my father was a mechanical engineer. So you can imagine that this kind of work was very mysterious to my family, although they were really supportive. So to be honest, when I started thinking about what I could do after my bachelor's degree, I remembered the character Lisa Turtle on Saved by the Bell and how she had wanted to go to FIT. And I thought, what programs does FIT offer? I was still in Michigan at this time where I grew up. And I found this MA, Fashion and Textile Program, and decided to go for it. And I was really naive about where that would lead me. And I ended up being very lucky in that The woman who is now the museum's deputy director, Patricia Mears, was one of my professors. She and I got along really well. And when I graduated with my MA, she said, you know, there's a part-time secretarial position available at the museum. It's not what you want to do, but I think you should take it. You'll meet everyone. You'll figure out how the museum operates. 
you'll just get a lot of experience just being in the space. So I did it. I took another part-time job in a fashion archive. I made ends meet. And that went on for a little more than a year before a full-time position opened up and I was able to start curating, which frankly I knew nothing about because you don't know a lot about it until you have to do it. But it was a really good way to get started. And I like to share this story because this was 16 or 17 years ago. And of course, the field has really exploded since then. Many more people are familiar with it. In some ways, that's brought more jobs, but not enough. Mm -hmm. And so when people ask me, how do I get work in this field? It's, it's tough. I'm not going to lie. But I always say that if you can get to the right place mm. and go from there, that was my strategy. And I just met everyone. I worked in various departments. I think the most important takeaway I got from that experience now as a curator is that I think curators can get this sense that they're busier than everyone else. You know, you're coming up with the ideas, you're leading projects, you're definitely not busier than everybody else. It takes a whole team. Everyone is integral to that team. Everyone's busy. And that is what I learned in this part-time position, doing a little bit of work for everyone who needed help. Mm, that's interesting. I think that's really solid advice. Fashion is completely competitive. Curating, I don't think, has enough positions available for the volume of work that is there. But I suppose that comes down to the structure of funding and how the industry is set up where it takes resources. So oftentimes you would know this more than me, but there's sponsorship, there's collaboration. To set an exhibit, to have an exhibition requires a full force of support. You don't just go out there and, and do this on your own. So I think because of all these reasons, it's a competitive industry to begin with, and even more so competitive if you're looking to get into archives or curation or research, I would think. Absolutely true. Yes. And that leads me to another point that I always try to emphasize to people who are entering the field, which is that you should always be nice. You should always be professional. Mm. I've had students in the past who have openly said terrible things about people that they're interning for, for example, who I know. We're all friends. You know, we all know each other. And so just making sure that you're really vigilant about how you're presenting yourself is also really important. It's, it's a small world, I suppose, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You listened to the advice that you were given and you started in a position that got you through the door and then you were able to kind of assess the landscape. How did you progress from there in your career? Well, I've been really lucky to have the mentorship of both Patricia Mears, whom I mentioned earlier, and Valerie Steele, who is the director and chief curator of the museum at FIT. And their help was really invaluable because what I love most about them is that they're very generous women, meaning that in some institutions you can take a job and have a curatorial title, but perhaps very rarely get credit for your work or certainly get credit as the lead curator of an exhibition. They were from the moment I took a position, actually a bit before I actually had a curatorial title, they were very willing to let me lead a project. And that was with a lot of help from them because curating is much more complex than 
many people would imagine, and I was still quite young, so there was a steep learning curve. But I basically just started by doing exhibitions in our fashion and history gallery, which is our lobby level gallery. We have two galleries, and the exhibition I think we'll talk about later is in our bottom special exhibitions gallery. Um, but that is a really great place to start curating because it has a lot of parameters. So the physical space does not change. You have to work within this gallery and you can't you know, change the wall color. You can't change the position of the platforms. The other limitation is that you have to use objects from the museum's permanent collection. And that's 50,000 pieces, so it's not a chore. <laughs> what do you keep all those pieces? They're here on site. Yeah, they're they're in one of our academic buildings and a couple of my colleagues valiantly oversaw the uh, renovations of these two spaces that we have a number of years ago. So they're really top of the line now. I love that museum I have for many years. First of all, it's free. I like the access, the accessibility. You just feel very welcome, which I think is important. But the diversity of what's shown, it's always a very interesting, eclectic mix. Thank you. And I think a lot of that comes, again, from the fact that Valerie and Patricia are, of course, curating their own exhibitions, but they're also allowing us uh, junior staff or someone like me, who's now mid-level staff, to pitch projects. Certainly, there are shows that I've worked on that haven't been my idea, and one of them was very recent. I worked on the fall 2021 exhibition, Ravishing the Rose in Fashion, with Amy De La Haye, and that was entirely her idea. I helped to implement it, but the credit goes to her. That's actually really fun in its own right, because seeing how someone else works is great. You can certainly learn from them. She's so creative. But we also consistently have the opportunity to pitch our own ideas. And that is what makes the museum so special because there's a lot of voices and a lot of narratives that come out of that. Valerie Steele, she's a queen, she's an icon, she's a legend. I don't know if the fashion industry would exist in its state today if it wasn't for her body of work. She's an incredible resource to the industry at large. I could go on and on. So how? what's the structure of the layout of the team? What's that look like? Well, uh, Valerie is, of course, the director and chief curator, and she really leads the museum, as you would imagine a director would do. Patricia Mears is our deputy director, and they are both in the director's office, which also has a few really, I mean, everyone at this uh, place is incredibly important. So we have a few other very important colleagues there. Um, I manage the collections department, which is a bit of a hybrid between the curatorial projects and also the collections themselves. So one of the things I always point out about this particular museum, because we have a staff of just over 20 people at this point, we don't have anyone who's designated as a uh, collections maintenance person. It's a group effort. So one of my colleagues, Michelle McVicker, from the collections department, from my department, takes on a lot of the day-to-day -day 
work, which includes pulling objects that are getting ready for exhibition, finding homes for new acquisitions, just generally seeing if there are any problems or things that need to be taken care of. But also our registrars work with the collections, our conservators, of course, work with the collections. So it really is a team effort and there is a lot of communication. We're a small team. We're all very passionate. We work really well together and we problem solve. So we're really lucky to have that. So at this point, we have director's office, we have collections, we have registrars, we have an exhibitions department that works on the physical building of the exhibitions. And then we have a wonderful education department that works in tandem with the curators and much of that stuff has curatorial titles because they're curating in a different way. And then we have a really fantastic media manager who helps again to put all of this information out into the public. You're an American institution. So American fashion is really important in that sense, but also it's very global and the dialogues are connected. I'm curious to know about how you decide what you're going to acquire in your collection. Acquiring for any museum, particularly smaller museums like ours, I I say smaller, even though we have a very large collection, but obviously for any museum, space is a major issue. We have been actively collecting since 1969. We worked a bit differently than we were a design lab. So it was it wasn't a museum in the sense that we think of it today. And now we're an accredited museum by the American Alliance of Museums. So we follow very strict ethics and protocol. We were a bit of a hybrid in the past, as many museums were, where we worked with industry professionals. People could actually check objects out. You know, it was a very different kind of operation. But all that to say we have a vast collection that has certainly morphed over time and the way that we think about what we need has changed. And so a lot of our acquisitions are based on gaps that we have in the collection. So for example, on one end of the spectrum, we're always looking for 18th century garments and accessories, which are, as you can imagine, increasingly rare. We have a good collection of them, but they're very fragile. We never put anything on display for more than six months. So, uh, and if we were to put an 18th century dress on display for six months, it would not go back on display for many years. It's just not how we operate. It needs a rest. So it's a lot of looking towards the past to see how we can fill those gaps. And then increasingly looking at what's happening now and trying to determine what's directional, what will be important for curators 30 years from now? When will they want to do a show on fashions from 2020? What will that look like and what might be important to that narrative? Valerie is very good at identifying that. I'm more of a historian. She is too, but I'm really a historian, so I'm not as good at determining contemporary fashion, but that's why we work as a team. Right. No, that's true because everyone brings their own insights and collaboration and ideas. And I think sometimes when we're living in history, it's hard to see its relevance because we're living it. I value history because it's our footprint on this planet. And once we're gone, that's all we have left. Fashion is to me, a reflection of society and culture, and it is so important. And I think, you know, I'm going on a soapbox now of the importance of fashion, but I truly believe that it's 
grown in the past 20 years where people are viewing fashion as a way of understanding humanity in how people live in a sociological sense even. So I think the job of curation and preservation and archives is so important when it comes to fashion and relating it to culture and pop culture, which maybe we can segue into your book, your beautifully curated exhibition. Was it the book first and then the exhibition? Well, the idea for doing a show on 90s fashion came to me a few years ago, I think. Hmm. And oddly enough, I'm a terrible sleeper. <laughs> so I always have my best ideas when I'm like half awake at 4am cycling through things. <laughs> it's, it's the weird benefit of being a terrible sleeper. There's very few, but that's one. <laughs> that's true. So I, in my half awake state, took a few notes on why this type of exhibition might be of interest. And like everything, I just started thinking about how that might look in reality. And one of the ways that I really like to curate that I think is an offshoot of those early days working only in our fashion and textile history gallery, which as I mentioned is all permanent collection objects, despite the fact that the special exhibitions gallery where the 90s exhibition is, is a space where we can get loans from other institutions, from designers, from private collectors. I still really like to curate shows based on our permanent collections. I just think with some exceptions, you should be able to craft a show from this great collection that we have. A number of people in the past few years have given or sold really great 90s clothes and those help to round things out a bit. So for example, one of my favorite new acquisitions is one of Vivian Westwood's corset bodices from her 1990 portrait collection, which is just a really important collection because it's the first time that she's printed artwork onto a garment, which is something she continues to do over the course of the 90s. And we purchased this from a really reputable dealer at a very fair price. And shortly thereafter, it became a real celebrity vintage piece. So to find one now is not only difficult, but prices have skyrocketed. So we just got this in the nick of time. We're a public institution. We don't have endless funds. So we do have to be cautious about what we're purchasing. So anyway, these kinds of things help to round out ideas. So I started slowly working on this show. I've had three back to back. So I'm actually on to the third now. But I really needed to start working on the 90s book. And it just so happened that I was going to start that just when we started lockdown in March 2020. And to be honest, it really helped my mental state because it was such a terrifying time for everyone. But I had this project that I absolutely could not ignore. So I just plowed ahead. I had the most amazing editor at Rizzoli who just has a wonderful attitude and lightness and humor to everything. So she and I kept in constant communication. We battled all sorts of 
things you wouldn't think about, you know, like contacting a well-known photographer and having them say, well, I, I would love to give you this, but my archive is in Paris and I'm in New York and I can't get to Paris. And sometimes they would work around it and find someone who was in Paris and could go to the archive. I mean, it was just very different, less straightforward way of working, but it all worked out in the end. So book and the exhibition certainly overlap as far as themes, but the book is much more based on concepts in a in a more general sense as you can imagine and the exhibition is I'm a very object-based curator so the exhibition is very much about objects and what each of those contributes to the overall narrative. So what was your idea for the narrative of the book and then how did you translate that to the exhibition because the book came first and then the exhibition but the thought is interwoven of course so how do you segment them because I would imagine two projects of that magnitude kind of being in tandem at the same time. That's a massive, massive undertaking. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I love working on both. I sometimes think, would I rather write books? Would I rather carry exhibitions? And the truth is I love doing both of them, even though they're very different beasts. Um, the, underlying thread for the exhibition and the book was tackling all of these disparate trends in the 90s and what those would be because of course as a curator you're always authoring this whether it's a book or it's an exhibition it very much has your voice it's your authorship as a curator you really need to think about what your thesis is going to be what your themes are going to be and then you need to own them so that means that you have to do a lot of additional research to come back to a fairly limited amount in the end the 90s has so many interesting topics and themes i could have explored but i ended up determining eight major trends and sticking with those for both the book and the exhibition. So that was the thing that ties them together the most. Yeah, and it's a very challenging decade because there's so much scope. But the reinvention and restlessness, fashion in the 90s, reinvention and restlessness, I had never considered that overarching theme when it comes to 90s. So the umbrella itself, I'm curious to know the reinvention and restlessness, that that dichotomy together, how did you arrive at that objective? I think keeping things tidy, to be honest, is really important. And I'm someone who within my exhibitions, I frankly try not to get too theoretical because I don't think that translates well, at least in the way I work and the way I write, I don't think that translates well to an audience. So I like to keep things kind of structured so that people know what they're looking at when they go into the exhibition they say okay there are these two main themes reinvention is mostly about this idea of how we're reinventing the luxury fashion system whether that's through martin margella whether that's through these really expensive grunge looks and then as we get into restlessness it's more about the anxiety that many people were feeling at the end of the millennium, the end of the century, what that meant to fashion and how people were feeling about what came next. So that's where we see ideas like technology and environmentalism. People were already concerned that we were starting to destroy the planet through fashion production and of course many other things. That's how I loosely divided the themes. 
what I found really interesting about this exhibition and what I'm really open about is that there's a lot of overlap. And particularly with someone like Margiela, whom I love, I had to really rein myself in because I could have put a Margiela object in every single section of the show. He fits into every theme and yet he's outside of trends. And so you just have to think through every individual object and make sure it has a singular narrative and go from there. And if two things tell the same story, you need to drop one. That's kind of how I work. You have to choose the best one. Yeah, I really like the idea of the reinvention and restlessness because people don't talk about it, in my opinion, enough. The Y2K 1999, there was a task force with preparations of things crashing it was the beginning of the next 20 years of a lot of restlessness. It sort of set the tone. So then, it did, yeah. then you go into minimalism, grunge, deconstruction, avant-garde, revival of luxury, which I really like, tech, retro revival, environmental. Do I have them right? Yes. Yes, you do. And the global wardrobe, which is Yes. Potentially the most important section in my mind. <laughs> okay. so it's a lot of ground to cover because you have those eight themes, but then there's the preface. So when you walk in, you go down to the, it's a massive space, two divides, one through one doors, and then the, you walk into this sort of pre-exhibition that's an exhibition. These beautiful characters, they're, they're like the welcoming committee to the exhibition. They're on the walls, they're on the door. And they're just quite lovely. They're like little friends. Thank you. I struggled a lot with the disparate aesthetics of the 90s. I mean, that's very much the point of the exhibition, but it does not make it easy graphically. And we create exhibition graphics in a number of ways, which includes, for example, asking designers for runway photos or asking for editorial photos, all of which, of course, we pay for. But we have various ways of representing shows. Sometimes it just includes mannequin shots of our own objects. So as I was thinking through how I wanted to represent some of the objects in this exhibition graphically, I just couldn't put my finger on a way that would make sense. And I worked with a really brilliant graphic designer for this exhibition, but even within that, I couldn't expect him to work miracles if I had no ideas for how this should look. So one of the things that struck me was that it might be really interesting to have an illustrator illustrate 10 of the looks in the exhibition so that at least through the way they were represented, there would be this theme, this cohesion. And we're very lucky at the museum to have an ongoing relationship with Ruben Toledo. So I reached out to Ruben and he very generously did these, well, it's actually more than 10 illustrations. He did this sort of black and white set that we ended up using for the graphics, but he also did a really incredible series of color images of the same looks. And as I worked with our graphic designer, we just thought it the black and white worked a little better. So that's where those came from. It was really just to give a little bit of cohesion to these very different looks. I thought they were brilliant and it was a great added dimension or layer of interest that just seemed to be very 90s. Thank you. Yeah, Ruben obviously was already very well known by the 90s, so he understood that aesthetic. And also, we really like the idea of paying artists for their work. That is something we have been 
doing for a number of exhibitions. So for example, in Ravishing the Rose, Amy had this wonderful idea to have someone hand paint a mural as you walked down the stairs into the gallery space. And so we were able to hire a muralist who very meticulously for weeks on end during COVID hand painted that space. And I think that's a really lovely way to think about these graphics because it, of course, allows you to pay artists for their work, but also gives you something really special and unique. That first section of the exhibition, there's a couple of highlights for me. You have the, the gorgeous Comme de Garcon, Ray Kawakuba, famous body dress with, a, you know, the sort of modifications. And then the Visionaire book with that set. And then the other Visionaire, the Louis Vuitton collaboration, which I had never seen, which is fabulous. So what was the idea to bring in Visionaire? Well, that first space that you walk into, we usually use as an introduction to the exhibition. And so the eight themes that we talked about earlier are all represented in the main space, which of course left me with how am I going to introduce this exhibition in this other smaller space? And there, I ended up, choosing to think about fashion's role within popular culture in the 90s, which is really amplified at that time. I, I, you know, it only gets bigger from there, but it really starts to set the pace in the 90s. And again, one of the things that I just kept coming back to is there were thousands of ways I could have represented that. The way that I wanted to represent that as a curator was through objects, through museum objects. And I'm someone who obviously works as a fashion historian and a curator, so I never mind looking at a regular, you know, open Harper's Bazaar or something. But I don't think that's necessarily the most compelling object for people. It's something that is quite accessible, that people are really familiar with. So instead, I chose to include Visionaire as a representation of how fashion magazines and how fashion was represented within print was expanding during this time period. So because we have these exclusive limited edition Visionaire, I use those as my physical objects, but it's really meant to talk about how magazines like Visionaire helped even mainstream magazines to start thinking differently about how fashion could be shown. And a great example of that is someone like Corinne Day, who was is best known now for early photographs of Kate Moss, but those were for alternative fashion publications like The Face. Mm-hmm. And once she and of course Kate Moss become better known, she's able to transfer some of her aesthetic and her ideas into more mainstream publications like Vogue. So this is a really important sort of crossover that starts happening in the 90s. That's a very interesting point. So this sort of underground movement that was similar to grunge was the birth that then became mainstream is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And you may have noticed I have a sort of pinup board of various fashion editorials. I did that in part because I was a teenager in the 90s and that was definitely something I did, you know, within my own bedroom. But also I really wanted to show a lot, but not all of those images are from more alternative publications. And 
what I love about them is that it's a real high-low mix, which we're so familiar with now, but was really innovative during the 90s. And also they're using models that aren't the same models that we're all familiar with and, and you know, used to seeing over and over. And I think that idea of representation, of, of sometimes literally taking people off the streets like Margiela did that he just thought looked interesting and said, you know, hey, come model my clothes. I think that was a really important thing to show as well. That's interesting. I liked the, also in the introduction, it really captured your attention because of the connection to pop culture and media with the Fran Drescher and, and her Moschino, that sort of pop culture moment. And I had seen those images before. They're almost iconic. But I hadn't seen Mark Jacobs for Perry Ellis in the Oscar dress or skirt dress. I love that because a American designer and I forgot Mark Jacobs worked at Perry Ellis in the early 90s. And where did that come from? To me, that was a gem. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed that. I, and the reason that you're not familiar with that look is because they couldn't sell it. So the story behind this and I put this in the section about models. And again, that was a section that I could have gone in a million directions. So I decided to focus on connections between models and objects that we have in our collections. And in this instance, we were donated this hand-painted skirt with the Oscar figurine that was worn by Cindy Crawford on the runway for, as you mentioned, Mark Jacobs for Perry Ellis. And it was illegal, basically, because you can't use that image without permission. And they went ahead and did it. And my argument is that not that they would have gotten away with it because Marc Jacobs was already a quite well-known up-and-coming designer at that point. But I think the fact that it was worn by Cindy Crawford on the runway did not help because all eyes are always on Cindy. So it's oh, like, what is Cindy wearing? It's this skirt. It couldn't go into production. So it really is a one-of-a-kind piece. That's very special. This happened with Alexander McQueen in the Dante collection when they used the imagery from Don McCollin and it was on the Village Voice and then Don McCollin saw it, they had to destroy the pieces and never went into production. Was that a 90s thing or has this happened repeatedly in history? I think it's happened repeatedly in history, but hmm. I wonder if it was more prevalent in the 90s because I'm also thinking of the famous Carl Lagerfeld for Chanel collection where he embroidered a bodice with a uh, text from the Quran, which was of course not received well. He ended up having to destroy that dress. And interestingly, they asked the press to destroy images of the dress, but of course many of them still exist. I have one in the book, in fact, which I, I use as this idea of, you know, you must be really cautious about what you're looking at and what you're appropriating, whether it be something from another culture or another artist. So I think it, it was partly because fashion was so much more in the media in the 90s than it was previously that something that may have been overlooked or known more to fashion insiders or people who were, you know, purchasing high fashion they may have known about these things and frankly probably wouldn't have cared, but as fashion becomes more mainstream, at least in the way that we're disseminating it and seeing it, it becomes more problematic. 
It's interesting because I think this notion of appropriation is the foundation of fashion, you know, taking something and changing it. That's what even what upcycling is. It's sort of what fashion is, but it's the cultural appropriation that's been happening for a long time as well in fashion. When you look at 1976, E.C. Laurent and his Russian collection, you can see African diaspora brought in. You can see a lot of other influences. Look at Galliano. He's famous for his appropriations. But that the 90s was a big time for that sort of appropriation. Maybe because I just think of Galliano leading the 90s in that way. But you're right. That, that's interesting. I think there's a lot of these other themes that are kind of bubbling to the surface when you really talk about it. So I'm curious to drill down a little bit, highlight some of these themes and why you chose them, because it really was quite spectacular in the volume of how you did that. Thank you. This was really combing through a list of permanent collection objects from the 1990s for probably a a good year. And it's a checklist that continues to evolve. And so, for example, I think a really good uh, indication of how checklists evolve is Tom Ford for Gucci. And of course, he was incredibly important at that label. I argue that his success at Gucci in the mid-90s starts this trend for many luxury houses hiring new talent like Galliano and McQueen and Stella McCartney and all these names that are still around. But I initially was thinking about including the Tom Ford for Gucci jeans from the late 90s that cost at the time, I think, a little over $3,000. Now they'd be closer to $7,000. So very, very expensive embellished jeans. And I thought, oh, well, they're perfect for the revival of luxury because they, of course, talk about this key moment in luxury fashion, these distressed embellished, incredibly expensive jeans. And they lived in the revival of luxury section for a long time. And then as I was continuing to refine the sections and writing about the objects, and I think starting to write about the objects, research them individually, and then write about them is the key moment for me in curating. Because if I find that something doesn't make the statement that it needs to make, I need to rethink it. And if it's not fitting into the overall narrative, forcing something in because you like it is never a good curatorial choice. And so I got to these jeans and I started looking at them and I was like, oh, so everyone talks about these jeans as being inspired by hippie culture. When in fact, if you look at their embellishment, which is a lot of beadwork and feather work, it's actually looking at indigenous craft and fashion. It's looking at African peoples. It's hippie fashion, yes, but what were the hippies looking at? And so I started to reevaluate that piece and it ended up in the global wardrobe because I am talking about the fact that there are these clear references to other cultures that weren't part of this conversation in the 90s, but that we instantly recognize now. That's really interesting. I'm also curious to know how Bo McCall got in there. What Bo is best known for and what I've included in the 90s exhibition is embellishing garments with buttons. And he does it in the most beautiful, layered way. And so we ended up acquiring a couple of his garments. But as I, was again, was working on the 90s show, one of the things I was 
cognizant of was not only including these designers that everyone was expecting. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we have these really great one-of-a-kind pieces by people who were working within the fashion industry, but also doing their own thing. And that's very much what Beau was doing. So this particular example, he's embellished a denim jacket with buttons in the colors of the Pan-African flag, which I thought was a great moment to emphasize this interest in globalism that we see in the 1990s that in some ways is very positive. I see Bo's work as part of that, but in some ways can also be viewed, as we've talked a little bit about, as appropriation, not in Bo's case, but in the instance of designers who were, for example, American or European, but looking at Chinese motifs and incorporating those into their designs. And My goal for this section, which is the global wardrobe, was not to call designers out and, you know, say, look at this terrible thing that they did. It was to really put some perspective on where we've come in the 21st century, because now we look at these designs and think, why is this particular designer referencing this culture? Is there some sort of collaboration? What's happening here? And in the 90s, it was a celebration for the most part. And so I really looked at uh, a lot of primary sources because many of these collections and particular designs are talked about by the fashion press. So you can get this sense of the positivity and this, you know, one world kind of feeling of the 90s. And I ended up for one particular ensemble finding my very favorite review. It's a Romeo Gigli ensemble that has, you know, the other problem is a lot of these designs, it's like he's referencing Africa. And of course, Africa's a continent. So that's not really a great way to describe something. But in any case, he is specifically referencing Sudanese beaded corsets. And it's a beautiful ensemble, but I read a review of this collection and this particular journalist was spot on. She basically talks about the references, how beautiful it is. And one of the things she says is, I hope that this is the beginning of people thinking about places other than the West as the center of fashion, which again, spot on, ahead of our time. But then she also very correctly notes that this collection is, she doesn't say problematic, but she indicates that it's problematic. And she says, this is an Italian's fantasy of Africa. So she gets it. She's already seeing the problem here. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And looking back at this, again, we can say, well, of course, this is a beautiful collection, but would you want to see this in fashion now? Unfortunately, sometimes we do, but I think there's a lot more awareness happening. So that's a really interesting point. So what's your stance on where we are now when it comes to fashion and cultural appropriation? Because it's a very complex and nuanced idea and there's a lot of different layers to it, but I think now it's an open discussion in a lot of ways within social media and with everybody in general. So I'm curious to know your viewpoint. I like the fact that Bo was part of the conversation because that was part of the 90s of African-Americans connecting to their African roots. It was this absolutely motherland connection 
whether you had been to Africa or not, you were celebrating your ancestral roots. It led into the fashion and the, the necklaces and the beads and the wooden African symbolism. So it was very much a movement in a lot of ways that was to push back in society in, in some ways as well. Like this mm-hmm. is our, we're proud of where we come from. So it was this political stance. And I think that's the politics in fashion I find very interesting because mm-hmm. all the nuances come from. And that's what makes it, I think, complicated. So that yeah. I thought was really powerful because it held so much meaning of what was happening in the 90s within this group. There's this whole other sort of subculture, if you will. Absolutely. And I think what is incredibly important today and something that we cannot make excuses for is that everything should be very carefully researched. So if you're looking at Pinterest, and I love Pinterest, but I use this as an example because Pinterest is full of images and ideas that are uncredited. Right. And there's simply no excuse to not know where something comes from these days. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in beadwork of a particular sort, as an example, find it. Find where this reference comes from. I don't care if it's Paul Poiret, that's fine. <laughs> but you know, you need to research this and we were talking about how fashion often appropriates and recycles in different ways, and that's very much part of the system. But I think the most important thing for anyone, whether you're a curator, whether you're a designer, is to think about where these references are coming from. And if they're not yours, try to find a way that you can work with them ethically. And that might not be the easiest thing, but that's not the point because otherwise it's, it's just inappropriate. I think that's really powerful what you just said. And that's a, it's a, it seems simple, but it's not. But that could solve a lot of issues because in, in the new era that we're in, sourcing is required. You look back at the Diana Vreeland days. It was figurative interpretation that at times was taken as literal because the the way it was presented, uh, beautifully magnificent, you know, extraordinary, but realistic, no. But I think those days are gone where now if you are going to interpret and you are going to have an expression, there has to be a source or a reference to where that came from. I'm watching Project Runway and I think they're doing something very smart. They're bringing in experts like they always do, but they're doing collaboration and they're showcasing artists that have for so long been not represented or their work has been invisible. And they're putting African-American hairstylists, for example, at the center stage and collaborating so that work is visible. So I think visibility is just as important as sourcing and referencing, which kind of go hand in hand. So I think you're really great. That's powerful. And that's really fascinating about Project Runway. I love that because you're right, visibility too, and giving credit where credit is due. And I think that's a big part of the battle, but that doesn't just mean that you say, oh, I know it was from this culture or these artisans. You also have to figure out a way to 
basically make amends, whether that's through payment, whether in high fashion particularly, that's through hiring these artisans fairly to work on these pieces. You know, you can't just take things and say, oh, but I knew where it came from, so that's okay. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I wanted to ask you your exhibition playlist. Mm -hmm. I love a good music playlist. We have Selena, we have Maisie Starr, we have Delight, we have The Stone Roses, A Tribe Called Quest. We have my favorite song, which is, you know, Juicy by B.I.G. No doubt. I mean, the playlist is really the spectrum. How did you choose it? Tell me more. Oh, that playlist. It took me several days. (laughs) That was one of the things I did last on the exhibition. The college went remote again on December 20th, and then we stayed remote until late January. But I started working on that playlist when we went remote again, because I thought this is the perfect way. It's easier to do on my home computer than my work computer. And as you know, because you suggested Juicy, I did some crowdsourcing on Instagram and said, you know, what is your favorite 90s song? Yeah. I was a big Britpop girl and also Riot Girl girl. Right. So those were my biggest references. But of course, that's very narrow. And so I wanted to make sure that I was covering a lot of different kinds of music, a lot of popular versus somewhat more alternative music, which I think was a huge part of the 90s as well. So I first did that, and then I had to make sure that every song I selected had a radio edit because, you know, I have to make sure that I'm not including any explicit language in our exhibitions. And the final thing was that the college actually does have licenses through some of the major music conglomerates. And so I had to make sure that our license covers all of those songs because otherwise it is copyright infringement. So One of my favorite bands from the 90s, which was Belly, was not included because they were not under any of those umbrellas. And I just don't feel comfortable. Again, it's about making sure people are paid for their work. And if we don't have the rights to use that song, I didn't use it. I think fashion tends to be exclusive. And whether it's your size, your ability, your color, you don't feel like you're wanted. And a lot of times fashion has sort of made people feel that way because they haven't seen themselves. I was on the train yesterday and overheard a woman talking about her chubby niece and how she just needs to lose weight. And I I was so upset. I wanted to say, you know what? Your niece is beautiful the way she is. And beauty comes in all sizes, shapes, and colors. But I didn't say it. I think fashion in general is a love-hate for me relationship because you feel like you're not wanted or you don't belong. And it's interesting meeting all these wonderful people that I have been exposed to on the podcast, talking to you, learning about your work and how you do things. The biggest surprise is I'm realizing how accessible people really are, that they really are accessible and open-minded and caring. And, and you are one of those people. And thank you. Don't know someone You assume in general that fashion is all the same, and then you get to know people and you see it's really different. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but think of curating. Your job is very powerful. You're telling stories. You're telling history. You really have a 
uh, a huge responsibility in that sense. I'm rambling, but I think it's an important point because I think fashion really is an open source platform. I completely agree. I was frankly a total weird kid and this was in the 90s. I did not fit in to my Midwestern town whatsoever. And I used fashion or my Midwestern thrift store version of fashion to make a statement, to basically say, I don't fit in. I know it. I don't care. And that is what really led me to being interested in self-expression and, and fashion in a general sense. I too, I've struggled with my weight my entire life, really since childhood. So I completely understand when people don't think there's enough body inclusivity. And I think that's something that uh, still needs to be addressed within my work and with in many people's work. But I think generally you're absolutely correct that my take on fashion and the way that I try to present fashion within exhibitions is that fashion is for everyone. And there's hopefully always something to connect to. And any good curator in any field knows that the way to get people interested in your exhibitions and coming back to your institution is to offer them ways to connect with something, to evoke some kind of memory. Even if it's as simple as I would wear that, I wouldn't wear that, that's hideous, why does it have lumps? All of these things get us thinking. And so I do, really try to bring that into my work. I think like everyone, I could do it better. And I'm always trying to improve upon the way that I'm communicating with people. But here at the museum at FIT, the idea of inclusivity has been really important to our work. And this has been going on for years. And it makes me really proud because we not only have a very diverse staff, but we've also been thinking about things like mannequin selection. Right. And I think it's really important. So a number of years ago, we learned that when people walk into a fashion exhibition and they see those refrigerator white mannequins that are very common, people read them as white people. And of course, if you're walking into an exhibition and all you see is a sea of what reads as white people, that's not inclusive, that doesn't make people feel like they belong. And so we now have been replacing mannequins. Mannequins are very expensive, so this is a process. But every time we buy a new cache of mannequins, we buy them in three realistic skin tones in varying shades of brown. And we now have a really good set of those. So they're interspersed into all of our exhibitions. We're not completely free of the refrigerator white, but we're getting there. And even that is such an important step. The bonuses, they look great in the clothes, so much better than the white mannequins. So, you know, not only do I hope people are walking into the exhibitions and thinking just even if they're not processing this, I hope that somehow in their minds they're thinking, oh, I, I could wear this, you know, fashion is for me. Fashion is for everyone. And it really is. One of the things I always say is I'm on a nonprofit salary. I'm not wearing this stuff either. That doesn't mean that we can't appreciate it and enjoy it and make it part of our world in whatever way. You know, if that's just styling ourselves in a grunge look, I think that was the beauty of grunge. I think we can still incorporate this into our lives, even if it's not a really direct translation. I absolutely love that. The exhibition and the acknowledgement section, 
is in memory of Fred Dennis. Who is Fred Dennis? Fred was our senior curator of costume, and he uh, passed away in December. So he worked at the museum for more than 30 years, and he had retired in the fall. But to be honest, he was such an important part of our team, and my favorite way of working with him was always during installation because he had a really incredible eye. He knew the collection extremely well. So usually as the curator, you're the only one who knows who designed what when everyone else is wheeling the mannequins down. He always knew every object. And we worked together in tandem on every exhibition that I'd ever done with him in the space with me. So I already knew it was going to be odd to not have him there, but to know that he couldn't be there was really challenging. So I wanted to make sure he was included in some way. I'm so sorry for your loss. That leaves a void. And I think it's special that he's recognized. So Fred's spirit was there. I just hope that people will come to the exhibition. One of the things I'll mention is that we do four major exhibitions a year. So we have a pretty aggressive exhibition schedule. So there's always something up. And as I mentioned, always something different from different voices. So if you can't make it to the 90s or you're just not interested, we'll certainly have some great stuff in the future. I remember I asked you about hip hop and you said it's so magnanimous that it's deserving of its own exhibition, which I was thrilled to hear. When is that coming online? It's going to be early 2023. So it's coming right up. Oh, fabulous. That's going to be very exciting. And what's the next project you're working on? I am working with Valerie on a shoes exhibition, which will open in September of this year. And then I pass the baton to my colleague, Liz, who will be doing hip hop, a really cool show on food and fashion. And then we have a little break from Liz's work. Val's doing a, a show. And then Liz is going to curate a show on Africa's fashion diaspora. Fabulous. Fabulous. Your work is incredible. Thank you so much, Colleen. This has been a fantastic conversation. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Oh, thank you.